I want to give you some taglines from, from ads, just generic ads. And I want you to think about what these have in common. Ready? Take one for a test drive today. Nine out of ten doctors agree. Kid tested, mother approved. Studies show. All right, what do, what do all of those have in common? What are all of those taglines that we hear again and again on television ads or in, or in magazine ads? What do they all have in common? What are they trying to assure us of? That the experts know. That, that, that we can actually trust that the, the product that we're about to put a bunch of money down on is, is going to deliver. Before Americans buy something, they want to know ahead of time that it works, that, that they're getting their money's worth. It, it's why so many ads uh, engage us the way that I just, I just uh, illustrated. It, it's why an incredibly boring magazine like Consumer Reports has such an incredibly huge circulation, 8 million paid subscribers, and that doesn't count their website, which apparently is, if not the largest, one of the largest paid subscription websites in the world. We want to know. We want to know in advance. Is it going to work? Is it up to its claims? We're, as Americans, you know, we're not known for being bilingual. We know English and English. But there is one foreign phrase that many Americans know. Caveat emptor. Who can tell me what that means? Caveat emptor. Buyer beware. Look, you're all saying it. That's Latin. It's a dead language, and you know it, right? Buyer beware. And so before we buy, you know, we, we want to try it out. And if we can't try it out, then we want to at least read the honest reviews of people who have tried it out. It, it's why th th there's this huge explosion in popularity of apps like, like TripAdvisor and, and Yelp and why I almost never buy anything on Amazon until I've read the Amazon reviews down below, right? I want to know, is it going to work? And, and the reality now, of course, is social media, which is this, this giant experiment in, in reviewing everything and letting everybody know right away what we think of it. Social media will make or break a product within days. Now, the reason that, that all of this kind of works this way, of course, is, you know, we, we don't want to get scammed. We don't want to get fooled. I want to put my hard-earned money down for something that is, is going to disappoint me. So if avoiding the snake oil salesman is important when it comes to consumer goods, how much more important is it when it comes to the ultimate questions, the meaning of life? If I want to know that I'm getting the best toaster or, or the best nasal spray or I'm getting ready to go to the best Mexican restaurant in town, how much more do I want to know that the teaching about God that I'm getting is for real, that it's been tried? that it's tested, that it's trustworthy. This spring, we're considering authentic Christianity using the letter of 1 John, John's first letter that he wrote. And this morning, John turns his attention 
to this very problem, the problem of sorting out the genuine from the fake in the marketplace of religious ideas. And as he does so, not only does he give us a a test to evaluate the various spokesmen for God that are out there, he also gives us a test to evaluate ourselves, to see whether or not we, in fact, are genuine Christians or if we're selling ourselves a bill of goods. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1902. 1902. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read the first six verses. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Okay, up to this point in John's letter, his focus has been on believers and their their assurance. How can a believer know that they really are a Christian, that they're genuinely saved? But now, at this point in the letter, John turns his attention from the believer directly, and he really focuses his attention on the false teachers that these believers that he was writing to were were encountering, that they were up against. He wants us to know how to discern true teachers from false ones. He doesn't doesn't want us to be gullible. He doesn't want us to, to be fooled into, you know, buying a bill of goods spiritually. And so he tells us there in verse 1, Test the spirits. Test the spirits. It's, it, that, that, that verb, test, is the same verb that Jesus uses when he's telling his parable uh, about the, the, the guy inviting people to the wedding banquet. And one guy says, oh, I, I need to go and examine my oxen. I just bought some new oxen. I need to, I need to go examine them. It's, like, it's literally like, I need to go take them for a test drive. That's what's going on here. This is the verb that he uses. We need to examine the spirits. Now, when he says spirits, that's, that's kind of weird. He's, he's actually referring to teachers, as, as is, is clear uh, as, as the verse goes on, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's referring to teachers, but he uses the language of spirits for, for several reasons, one of which is he's been talking about the way we have now been given new life by the Spirit, and he's, he's really continuing that theme. He knows, you see, that behind every prophet, behind every teacher, there is a spiritual source of their teaching. Not necessarily that they're inspired, but but, but there is a, a spiritual source of their teaching. And the question is whether that source is God or Satan. To find out, we're to test them, we're to, we're to evaluate them. How do we do that? How do we evaluate and test the teaching that we're hearing to find out what its true source is? Well, John gives us 
two questions to answer. He really gives us two tests, two questions to answer. First, who do you confess? Who do you confess? That's verses one to three. And second, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? That's verses four to six. As you can tell, these aren't just questions that we put to the teachers. They're questions that we put to ourselves. So first, who do you confess? Look, at, look again at verse one. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. In a world filled with people who claim to speak for God, the first test that John gives us there in verse 2 is this test of whether or not they acknowledge, literally confess, that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, right? Is the Messiah come in the flesh? Do they confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh? Now, John has, with this, now returned to the doctrinal test. You, you, you know how we've been going through 1 John, and he's, he's given us three tests for determining whether or not you're a genuine Christian, uh, the, the moral test of obedience, the social test of love, and the, the doctrinal test of belief. We've been through all of those tests once, and then we've been through the, the test of obedience and love a second time. Well, now he's returning to that, that third test, the, the doctrinal test of belief, but he's applying it to the teachers. Friends, here is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. The confession that the man named Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, was executed on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem, that that man is in fact the incarnate Christ, the eternal Son of God, become man, and become man for a reason. Become man in order to rescue his people from sin and death, to, to be the Messiah. John has packed an enormous amount of theology into this very short sentence in verse 2. And I want to quickly point out three doctrinal, three theological points that he's making in these very few words. First, people who have the Spirit of God confess that Jesus is God. They confess that Jesus is God. In the gospel narratives, the demons recognize Jesus' identity. That's why I don't really like uh, the, 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 the word the NIV chose uh, to translate this, acknowledge, right? The demons acknowledged that, that Jesus was God. They, they recognized his identity. But they didn't confess it right? Because to confess Christ, to confess that Jesus is God, it, it, it is to honor him as God. It is to submit to him as Lord. Now, the demons didn't do that. Yet they, they recognized him. They acknowledged who he was. They did not confess him. 
In contrast, of course, the Holy Spirit always honors the Son. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes in order to honor the Son, to confess Him as as who He really is, the eternal Son of God. And so those who have the Holy Spirit will also confess and honor Jesus as the Son, as God himself. Okay, that's the first doctrinal point. Second, people who have the Spirit of God, they don't just confess that Jesus is God. They confess that Jesus is the Christ, the the Messiah. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a moral example. He's not a a display of how much God loves us, though, though he does all of those things. No, fundamentally, he's the one who rescues us who rescues us from the judicial wrath of God. He's the one who gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross. But why did he do that? Why did he sacrifice himself on the cross? Well, he did it to pay the penalty for our sins as our representative. He substituted himself, who knew no sin, for us, who are filled with sin. And to prove that his sacrifice was accepted three days later, He got up from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. So people who have the Spirit of God, as this sentence makes clear, they confess that Jesus is God. They confess that Jesus is the Messiah. But third, people who have the Spirit of God confess that the person of Jesus, that in the person of Jesus, God actually came in the flesh. He actually became, God became man. You know, some in John's day were claiming that Jesus only appeared to be a man. That that, 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 that figure that was walking around in Galilee, that was teaching, that was doing miracles, yeah, he had the form of a human, but he wasn't really human because he was doing stuff that like only God can do. So it was God just kind of pretending to be a man. It, It was God kind of, wearing human flesh sort of like as a mask, but he wasn't really human. That's some of what John was up against in his day. Now, in our day, everybody knows that Jesus really lived. There was way, there's way too much historical evidence to, to deny the, the reality, the life of this man called Jesus of Nazareth. But in our day, of course, most people want to claim that Jesus was only a man, a really good man. Uh, kind of a really tragic man because he got himself killed, but merely a man. Friends, genuine Christianity rejects both of those reductions and affirms that Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man. Not a hybrid, not a mixture, but one person, Two natures. The Bible doesn't expect you to be able to explain that. It doesn't expect you to be able to to understand how all of that works. It does expect you to confess it, to believe it, because it matters. You see, if Jesus is not the God-man, fully God and fully man, there is no salvation. You are still in your sins. Your hope is a pipe dream. Because 
You see, in order to represent us, he had to be us. Right? He, can't, he can't represent us. He can't take our place unless he is really human. Because we have a really human problem. But on the other hand, he can't save us unless he is God. It's precisely because he is God that he can satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. Out of the infinite and perfect righteousness that he himself had, he is able to satisfy God's demand for righteousness. He is the God-man. And unless he is both, we have no hope. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, here is the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of Christianity. Your sin, your your rebellion against God, your decision to, to live life as if you are God or as if there's no God and you're just in control, this has left you with a debt to God that you must pay, but that you can never sufficiently repay. You you understand that all eternity in hell will not be time enough to satisfy your offense against God. You don't have it in you to pay God back for the offense that you've done. And so the good news of Christianity is that God in his love has undertaken to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. In the person of Jesus, God the Son has become man. He has lived the life you should have lived. And then he has been willing to stand in your place. And out of his infinite righteousness has paid your debt for you. If you will have him. If you will repent of your sins and put your faith in him. Now, I understand, having just explained that, that this is both the very best news of Christianity. It's really the only reason that anybody should bother listening to Christianity. And yet, it is also the most difficult claim of Christianity. You know, if Jesus just claimed to be a good teacher, and, and, and you became a Christian by acknowledging that Jesus was a good teacher, well, I mean, I think the whole world would be Christians, right? Because he was a good teacher. Every, everybody recognizes that. But that's, that's not what he claimed. Jesus claimed to be God, and we confess him to be God. Now, if that's true, all the rest of the Bible is easy. You, you know, I think we need to recognize this, right? If that's true, if Jesus is God, then everything else that you find difficult in the Bible really becomes really easy. Cre- creation, easy. Uh, uh, resurrection, easy. Miracles, easy. Heaven, hell, easy. A human being, God? Not so easy. But if he is God, all the rest of it makes sense. So that's the question, isn't it? Is it true? Not is all the rest of it true. No, is it true that Jesus is God? Well, how are you going to know? Test him. That's what I want to say to you. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, test him. 
put his claims to the test. Examine his life. Examine his teaching. Examine the way he fulfills all of the Old Testament. How could that be? Examine the way that he transforms the lives of people on the pages of the New Testament and continues to transform people's lives today. How could that be? Put Jesus to the test and see if he's not who he says he is. You see, I'm I'm asking you this morning, if you're not a believer, I am asking you to today make a confession of faith to confess faith in Jesus Christ. This is is not blind. This is not rational. But it is faith. You you, you can't run an experiment to prove it. In that sense, it's a little bit like when I go on Yelp and I read a bunch of reviews about a restaurant that I've never been to. I'm trusting the testimony of others And then I'm going to act on that trust, and I'm going to go to that restaurant. Uh, But then I'm going to get to test it out for myself. Friends, this is very much what it's like becoming a Christian. You've been given testimony about Jesus. You've been given it in the Word of God, in the Bible. You've been given it in the lives of people around you, maybe maybe other Christians you know. I'm asking you to do for, for Christ what you do for restaurants every week. Examine the testimony and then test it and see if he doesn't prove that he was worthy of your test, unlike the restaurant I went to last week, right? Jesus does not disappoint. He does not let you down. Now, I I know you you, want to say, well, if I were just there, man, if if I had just been there, this would be easier. No, it wouldn't have been. No, it wouldn't have been. Jesus' own disciples had the same problem. They they walked around with him. They ate with him. They talked with him. But at the end of the day, they had to confess by faith that he was and is the Christ come in the flesh, God incarnate come to save them. When Peter made his great confession of, of Jesus in, in Mark chapter uh, 8, and it's actually recorded in all the Gospels, G- Jesus' response to Peter was, this wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. It, it's still the same today. Faith comes from God and shows that you are of God. Faith comes from believing God's testimony about his Son. Put your faith in Christ today. Examine, test the testimony, and then trust him and begin to test him yourself. Now, on the other hand, John declares in verse 3, you see there in verse 3, that teachers who do not confess Jesus, they're not only not from God, they are from the Antichrist. Back in chapter 2, John said that many Antichrists, many false teachers had already appeared But here he makes clear that the source for all false teaching is the spirit of the, capital T, Antichrist. From the beginning until this very day, 
Satan would deceive people about God. And now he would deceive people about God's fullest revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And he would deceive people to our destruction. Though the final opposition to Christ has not been revealed, I don't know who or what the Antichrist is finally. Nevertheless, John tells us that the spirit of that opposition is alive and at work in the world. And what that means, friends, is that, that unbelief, you know, the rejection of Christ, the, the, the pursuit of other means of organizing my life, that, 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 that is what the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, actively encourages in this world. I think sometimes we think about unbelief wrongly. We think about unbelief as, as just sort of the resting state of the heart, right? You understand why I talk about the resting state, the, 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 the position that something goes to when no other forces are acting on it? Right? And so we think of unbelief as just sort of the resting state of the heart, entirely unmotivated. But friends, that's not true. Unbelief is powerfully motivated. It is always motivated, both internally by our own pride that does not want to submit to God, and externally by the spirit of Antichrist, by Satan who actively promotes our own Self-destruction, which means that belief is not merely a rational problem. You know, encouraging people to put their faith in Christ is not simply a matter, finally, of just presenting the right evidence or enough evidence. And if we could just get to the the right key, then everyone would become a Christian. No, it's, it's, it's not finally a rational problem. It is a moral and a spiritual problem in which people are self-deceived because they want to be self-deceived. And they are encouraged in that self-deception by the enemy. And what does that mean for us as a church? What means that in our evangelism, we must not only proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ faithfully, but we must pray. We must pray. We must call on God the Spirit to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to give ears to hear where there were no ears to hear. We, we need to understand that in our evangelism, we are engaged in, in a battle for hearts and lives with spiritual weapons that God has given us. Not politics, but preaching. Not law and laws, but love. Not the culture wars, but sacrificial service in spiritual warfare. You understand, Henson Baptist Church, that that we are not trying to build a kingdom here. And so the the tools and the weapons of this world are frankly of almost no use to us. We are seeking to, to rescue people for the kingdom that is to come long after the political and cultural wars of our day have ceased. It doesn't matter, it doesn't mean that those issues don't matter. It simply means that they are not ultimate and they are not finally what this church is about. So I want to encourage you in your evangelism, are you praying? I I want to just call again for, for more of you to come back out on Sunday evening and pray with us. You know at our Sunday evening prayer meeting, every week in one way or another, we are praying for evangelism 
and missions that are going on in, in this church. And sometimes it's, it's larger corporate things that are going on, but sometimes it's, it's a specific relationship that you are in, that, that you get a chance to share, and, and we all kind of gather around it and pray for that. I want to encourage you. I, I know it's inconvenient to come back out to church a second time. Ask my kids, you know? I mean, they, they know, right? I, I understand that. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it for us to get together to pray for the advance, for the work of the gospel. Let me encourage you to, to make sure that you're spending time every, every day in, in, in your own time with the Lord, specifically praying for, for non-Christians that you know and that you love. M- maybe, maybe the specific unbelievers that you're going to be around in the day ahead, like if you spend time praying in the morning, Try to think through, who are some of the non-Christians that I'm going to be around today? Now, if they are people that you're around all the time, it may be that quite a while ago you gave up on them. You know, you you basically became convinced they are never going to become believers. You know what? That's true. Unless the Holy Spirit acts. Unless the Spirit opens their eyes and changes their heart. And how does the Spirit do that? Well, in part, he does that as a response to our prayers. So do you have a short list of people you're praying for? Think, think about sharing that uh, with, with others, gathering together. Maybe you spend time in your small groups praying for the non-Christians that you know. Don't, don't give up. Understand that this, this, this is a battle. This, this is a war. But it's not one with the weapons, the tools of this world. It is one that the Lord must fight for us, and he does. He delights to do it. In a world filled with false spiritualities that claim to be from God but are not, it is crucial that we understand that the Christian life is a thinking life. It is crucial that we are able to examine and evaluate the teaching that we hear. When, when, uh, when John talks about testing the spirits, you know, he's, he's not talking about intuition. He's not talking about how that speaker made me feel. He's, he's, not, he's not talking about, about sentiment. No, he's, he's talking about the spiritual equivalent of the kind of stuff that they do in, in Underwriters Laboratory and, and the Consumer Reports Labs, right? Thinking about it, evaluating it, critically putting it to the test. And this is important, especially when the teaching that's being presented to us really isn't being presented straightforwardly as theology. It is so easy to be led astray by false spiritualities. And, and just to, to give you an example, this happened to me this week. All right, this week I found myself, you know, hoodwinked. I, I read an article in a major Christian magazine. And this article was powerful. It spoke to me deeply. It moved me profoundly. It was an article about shame and the need for people and for the church to be the kind of place where people can come out of their hiding and not be trapped by their feelings of shame. And this article moved me so profoundly that right away, I mean, I got on Twitter and I, I, I retweeted the article. 
And then a friend of mine who had also seen the article, um, he, he called me up, and we, we actually conducted most of the conversation by email. And, and he asked me, hey, why, why did you do that for that article? Why were you so positive about that article? I said, oh, it was so powerful. It was so profoundly moving. And he said, yeah, but did you notice that not once in the article did he mention that the cause for shame was something that was objectively wrong and needed to be forgiven? And I said, oh, um, no, no. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that because I'd been so moved. I'd been so moved that I, that I hadn't noticed the fact that, that actually what the author had done was presented a gospel and, and, and actually did some great work thinking about shame. But in the end, the gospel that he presented was a gospel that was all about personal authenticity, about not hiding anymore. And it was all about finding kind of therapeutic healing. And not once was the need for forgiveness mentioned. Not once was the need to, to, to acknowledge sin before God mentioned. And forgiveness for that sin received through the, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your, your pastor was, was hoodwinked, right? Because, because my, my feelings led me. And I didn't stop to think about what was being said. Maybe that's happened to you. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is the life of the mind as well as the life of the heart. We've got to evaluate what we're hearing, what, what, we're, what we're reading. There, there are other examples. There's not just the personal authenticity, therapeutic gospel that's out there kind of masquerading as the Christian gospel. There's the false gospel that, that you can slay the giants in your life and Jesus and the church are here to help. You can do it. You can overcome the giants in your life. And Jesus is going to help you. And the church is going to help you. It sounds really good. Until you realize that that message, if that's all it is, is really just prosperity gospel the way white people like to hear prosperity gospel. Not so much about material goods, but, you know, about overcoming challenges in, in our lives. Prosperity gospel light. A, a message that... that that as Chris Marriage reminded us last week, has us as the superhero in our life, you know, I'm Batman, and God is Alfred, right? God's always there behind me. He's got my back. He's Alfred helping me overcome the, the, the superhero-sized problems in my life. Or if you want to update it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Tony Stark, I'm Iron Man, and, and God is Jarvis, right? But, but either way, it's not the gospel, but it sounds like it is at first because it sounds so good. Again and again and again, we must come back to this test, a test that's gonna make us think, a, te a test that's gonna press us. Who do you confess? A Jesus that fits your preconceptions? A Jesus who seems rational to you? A Jesus who's gonna help you get what you need and want? Or do you confess the Jesus of Scripture, God in the flesh, who doesn't give you everything you want, but who saves you from your sins 
and who calls you to follow him as Lord. That's the first test. But there is a second test, a second test that John gives us in these verses, which we're going to look at a little more briefly. Second, then, not just who who do you confess, but who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? Look at verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. John gives us the second test there at the end, there in verse 6. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. But how do we do it? Well, John says in the verses right before that, he basically says, well, consider their audience. Who listens to them? You can tell a false teacher because the world listens to them. And why does the world listen to them? Well, the world listens to them because that teacher is, John says, from the world. He's of the world, and he speaks a language that the world understands and approves of, a language that diminishes Jesus, and that basically is maybe a very religious form of unbelief. People who have the Spirit of God, John says, people who have the Spirit of God, they don't listen to false teachers, no matter how religious they sound, no, no matter how appealing, no matter how good they are pulling at our heartstrings. At the end of the day, genuine believers, people who have the Spirit of God, they don't listen to them. John says true Christians have overcome them. They have overcome false teachers. What does that mean? That means that they're, they're not led astray by them. They're, they're not taken in by them, by their, by their blandishments, by, by their... their nice-sounding words. But instead, genuine Christians, John says, listen to apostolic teaching. You saw that, didn't you? The word apostolic's not in there. But, but John does something really amazing here. Did you notice the shift in pronouns? John's been talking about them, the false teachers, and he's been talking about you, the, the, the beloved children in the faith. But in verse 6, he says, we, we, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Now, it's, it's clear that this we that he uses here, it's not the preacher's we. You, you know, I, I, I'm a preacher. I, I use we and us all the time. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this, and I do it quite deliberately. I, I, I do it so that you understand that I'm not talking down at you, that, that I'm not suggesting that I've got it all together and you all have all the problems and you all need to sort out your lives. So now sometimes I'll say you because I need to, but a lot of times I'm going to say we to, 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 to communicate that we're all in this together. That's not what John's doing here. This is not the preacher's we. This is the apostolic we. This goes right back to how he opens the letter in, in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. An apostolic message. Genuine Christians, John says, hear and heed the apostolic message, which we, we now have in Scripture. And, and true teachers, teachers who are teaching out of the Spirit of God, they also teach 
the apostolic message because they're delivering a message from God and that message comes only through the apostles. And so John says, whoever knows God listens to us. It is an extraordinary claim. It's not something that I would ever say. And if you ever hear a human teacher say that, you know you're probably listening to a false teacher, right? This this is something that he says as an apostle. He's alluding to Jesus' words in John 10, where Jesus says, my sheep know me, and they listen to my voice. John is declaring that in the apostolic message, God's people recognize God's voice. They hear it, and they heed it. And in our willingness to hear and to heed God's voice through the apostles, we give proof that we've come to know God, that we have overcome the world. Now, on the other hand, uh, John says, the world, in its unbelieving opposition to God, would rather listen to false prophets. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 43, and he's speaking to the Pharisees here, you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. John's picking up on that basic dichotomy here. Those who are from the world listen to the world, in which the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. You understand, this isn't about opinion. This isn't about rationality. This isn't about how, you know, some people uh, liked David Letterman for their late night show and other people liked Johnny Carson or now Jimmy Fallon for their late night show. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about family. We're talking about family. In a crowded room with lots of people talking, I can make out the voices of my kids and my wife. And I see a bunch of you all smiling because you know that phenomenon, right? There can be lots of kids screaming on the playground, but a parent can make out their kid's voice. And that kid can make out their parents' voice. Right? We, we, we teach our children to, to listen for the sound of our voices. As, as spouses, we, we grow to the point where we can, we can hear one another's voices no matter what else is going on in a room. I, I think this is just a principle of the way the world works because we see this working its way out in the, in the non-human world as well, right? I remember living over, over in England a few years ago and... Um, they do lots of nature shows on British television um, because there are, you know, it's, it's paid for by the government. You don't, have to do, you don't have to worry about advertising, so you can do whatever you want. And if you want to put hours and hours of nature programming during prime time, then you're free to do that. And that's what the British do. And so we came to love watching nature shows. And uh, I remember watching this one show, David Attenborough, uh, and it was all about Antarctica. And they, and they showed this absolutely crazy scene of all of these emperor penguins and dad emperor penguins have been spending the entire cold, dark winter with baby emperor penguin on their feet, shuffling around, not eating at all for months, right? And then one day, all the moms come back at once. And they've been eating all winter. And then, and, and, and their whole goal for eating is now to, you know, feed the baby and feed dad and then let dad go, you know, get a meal. And it's, it's chaos. There are 
Hundreds of thousands of emperor penguins all squawking, 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 squawking. And yet, every mom finds every unique dad. And scientists wonder, well, how do they do this? They know the voice of dad. The mom knows dad's voice. Dad knows mom's voice. And they find each other. I mean, it happens with ducklings. It happens with dogs, right? It's right throughout the animal world. In a family, you know the voice of your dad, of your mom. It's the same spiritually. It's exactly the same. Friend, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? If you're not a Christian, pray that the Spirit would open up your deaf ears. Now, I know that sounds arrogant on my part, but I don't mean it that way. I simply, I simply mean that until you can take on board and really hear an alternative to the world's message of unbelief, then, of course, unbelief is going to make sense to you. But that doesn't make it true. Any more than the universal belief that the sun revolved around the earth made it true. Majority opinion doesn't determine truth. It just makes things seem like they're true. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you, pray that God gives you ears to hear his voice in the message of the gospel. Now, if you are a Christian, this same question applies to you. Who do you listen to? When you hear God's word, and then on the other hand, you hear the world's word, which word are you drawn to? Whose, whose side are you on? Maybe you thought of yourself as a Christian because a long time ago you made kind of a formal confession of faith in Christ. But, but friend, if that confession of words, of faith in Christ, is not accompanied by hearing and heeding God's word, then why do you think you're a member of his family, really? You see, if you confess Christ but then listen to the world, then your confession is just words and you have not overcome the world. Who do you listen to? If you're at all like me, you spend most of your day listening to yourself. It's kind of constantly going up here, constantly listening to myself. Christian, are you preaching God's word to yourself? Or are you parroting the world's message back to yourself? And of course, if you're not listening to yourself, if you're like me, you're probably listening to some form of media, TV or radio or music or movies or social media. In the, in the midst of all of that cacophony, in the midst of all of that message of materialism and individualism and self-expression and the pursuit of pleasure that the world is constantly shouting at us, Christian, do you have ears to hear God's word? How would you know that you do? Well, I think the basic way you know that you do, that you're hearing God's word, is that when God's word comes to you and it crosses your will, and you go with God's word instead of your will, you know you're hearing and you're heeding his word. When God's word comes to you and tells you what you don't already want to know, what you don't already want to hear, but you submit to it anyway, well, then you know you are hearing and heeding God's word. Is there time and space for that in your life? 
It's happening right now, I hope. This is why we gather every Sunday morning. Are there other times, are there other places that you have set aside, away from the maddening crowd, away from the cacophony of noise, to hear God's word and then to heed it? And here, here's the test. Here is the test. We bought our first house in England, uh, Adrian and I, and just like there, just like here, when we bought a house here, we didn't just plunk our money down on it because it looked pretty from the outside, right? We walked around inside, we hired an inspector, we tested it to make sure this was going to be a good purchase. When I, when I bought my first car, when I bought my second car, I've only bought two cars in my life, both times, I took it out for a test drive. I compared reviews. Last week when I was trying to get new tires for my car, I spent hours trying to decide, should I really trust Les Schwab or should I go with Michelin like I always have, right? Testing it out. If I'm going to spend that much time on things that merely cost money, wouldn't I want to apply at least as rigorous a test to something that's going to cost my life? Who do you confess? Who do you listen to? In a world awash with spiritualities, in a world awash with all sorts of teachers out there, there really are only two options. Today, today commit yourself to being someone who confesses Christ and who listens to Christ through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed give us faith, faith to recognize Jesus for who he really is. We pray that you would give us discernment, that whenever we listen to teaching, that we would be listening for that, that we would be listening for, for, for teaching that faithfully confesses Christ and the fullness of his gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that hear and heed your word. For we know that if you don't do that, we won't do it. You must do this work in us. And we, we humbly ask that your spirit would, in fact, do so. To our everlasting joy and to your everlasting glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.